Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 21 of From the Van. It's a podcast from my van where I have conversations with people who have relationships with residential vehicles. Ladies and gentlemen, today on the podcast, I have Larry Balma. Larry Balma is probably responsible for one of the very most important technological improvements uh, that facilitated modern day skateboarding. Tracker Trucks, which is his company, was his company, um, made skateboard trucks that basically made it possible to haul ass downhill and made them durable enough for trick skating. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful conversation that we had. He does have a camper, but when I have an opportunity, guys, to, when I have an opportunity to interview somebody uh, this legendary, I'm going to take it whether there's much of a van life nexus or not. Um, we had a wonderful conversation about, about risk, about life, about entrepreneurship, and about um, tinkering and inventing and stuff. Really look up to this guy, and uh, we got along swimmingly right off the bat. Hope that you enjoy this episode of uh, From the Van. Always uh, remember to go over to fromthevan.com and um, subscribe to the YouTube channel and the podcast and all of that. A bunch of dumb stuff happening over here, and I'm having a good time. Hopefully you are too. Enjoy episode number 21 of From the Van featuring Larry Balma. There we go. Larry Balma, welcome to the van. Yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> Your place is rad, man. I'm super into this spot. Um, so let's talk about surfing. Sure. Uh, why'd you make surf, uh, skate trucks? Well, skate trucks basically so that they could get the feeling of surfing when we weren't at the beach or uh -huh. there was no surf or something. And it's, you know, it's a gravity sport. It, uh, doesn't move like a wave moves, but but uh, you find ditches and work them back and forth, and right. now we build ramps and even skate parks. Where were you? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Alhambra, San Gabriel Valley, okay. by next to East LA. Uh huh. Um, and what? Man, that's <laughs> that plank of uh, wood with the uh, metal wheels on it. Like really tripped me out. Like where was where was skating when you started? Well, okay, nineteen. The, the, the when I was a little kid, I had a I had a scooter, and and it was common since the twenties to build these scooters. And you'd take a roller skate, especially the roller skates they made for the street because they were the cheapest ones that were clamped onto your shoes, and you put half of it on the front of a two by four and half of it on the back. Mm -hmm. And then take an apple box, or we used orange crates because they were a little taller, mm -hmm. and put a handle on it, and you had a scooter without buying one that was manufactured right. and cost money, you know. I mean, everybody was into, you know, DIY, right? And uh, in 1947, Peter Parkin, uh, part of the, the Wind and Sea Surf Club, built a skateboard with the metal skates but without the box on there uh -huh. and he would come down nautilus street which is a really steep ass street in la jolla oh, but yeah. it comes all the way down to to winancy and he would carry his surfboard which was a longboard at the time carry his surfboards ride down the beach and then 
all the guys that hung out at the beach there would take turns riding a skateboard mm -hmm. around and that was you know that's as far as we can go back and figure that was the first one first one and and there's i mean when we made ours tracker trucks would the name came because train cars have trucks on front and back the truck is a part that holds wheels to a hand truck or mm -hmm. any kind of a thing that's moving right well train trains had ones that turned like skateboards right even though they were being pulled but that's what they did and when we first the when the the urethane wheels came out and uh we were skating up at la costa i was living in lucadia at the time and we would ride those hills because the the teamsters pension fund built la costa and they built all these streets but basically they had their their hotel spa thing there and they didn't have any houses anywhere mm -hmm. and so we could we all had little pickup trucks and we would take turns driving and it'd just be like a ski lift right going to the top <laughs> of the hill and riding again and since there were no houses and a lot of these streets were dead-ended at that time nobody drove through there there was no reason to so skateboards was the only thing on the hills going there yeah and there'd be this thin layer of dust because it's still all dirt even mm -hmm. though it's graded it's still all dirt everywhere and so you get this little thin layer of dust and when you skated down it the the wheels would blow the dust out of the way and you'd have these tracks because oh, cool. we're like slalom riding down the hills right and so we ended up with tracker trucks right on that's awesome uh and those were probably like really creamy like smooth streets because brand new brand new nobody's driving them yeah yeah you know when i lived in uh, union labor <laughs> when i lived in uh orange county i was going to law school in um costa mesa and i would drive down to laguna beach for the same reason because it's like rich neighborhood with a bunch of hills and like perfectly groomed uh asphalt and yeah. stuff um so what was the when we started with the with those metal wheels though that you saw those were the cheap skates at the time we'd put them on make our skateboard and if you rode on the asphalt because all the asphalt streets were rough, mm -hmm. you, it would just wear out the wheels. I mean, really fast. Yeah, we rode on the sidewalks or on driveways that were concreted. I mean, the smoother, the better. You know, I just can't even imagine what it would be like to ride one of those things. You get speed wobble at like six miles an hour, or no. <sighs> You didn't get going that fast because the wheels are small diameter. They're they're hard and and you know there's no give to them. Like the urethane has some give, even though you get a real hard urethane wheel, it still it still has a little bit of give, and you can slide it and control it. Those mm -hmm. steel wheels you couldn't slide. You were you were gone if you got leaned over too far. Mm -hmm. So you know it definitely wasn't skating like skating is today, but. Uh, what I did is I went, you know, I was making money any way I could, you know. I was mowing yards and all this stuff. And, and everybody's garage, look at my barns out here. Mm -hmm. They're full of crap, right? And so I went to these ladies and I'd say, I'll clean your, I'll clean your garage for $5. 
and I and they'd say, "Sure, yeah, my husband won't ever do that," you know. And, mm -hmm. and so I would clean everything up. I'd throw away everything I, you know, that I knew was really trash, and then I'd put a pile of stuff that do you want to toss this or do you want to keep it? And I would always have a pile of roller skates because everybody's girl, they always bought them for their kids and then they get a bigger size for their kids. So I would have a full pile of skates there. And I said, do you want to have these skates anymore? And so I got paid $5 for cleaning garages and I got an endless supply Collecting. of steel wheeled <laughs> skates. And I had enough for that supported me and my friends for years there yeah. until, you know, until the next step was the, the clay composite wheel. It was clay and, and some kind of plastic that held it together. Right. And then, so, but the, the next huge leap before, before the truck, right, was, or the, the updated truck, was the polyurethane wheel, right? Right. Um, and, and they were made basically for training wheels for the roller rinks. Okay. Because they wouldn't go as fast as the harder composite wheels that they were making. Mm -hmm. And so they could teach kids how to skate with these things. Mm -hmm. And Frank Nasworthy was an Encinitas guy. Mm -hmm. He uh, went back east to school, ultimately became an aeronautical engineer, but he was back east at school. And one of his buddies, they went on a road trip and visited, visited this guy's uncle. And the guy's uncle worked at uh, quality urethane back there and they're going through looking at all the machines and all the stuff they're doing and here's here's a 50 gallon drum full of wheels uh, oh what are these you know and it's wow we never had these on our skateboards yeah. oh yeah we make those for the roller rinks those are all rejects mm -hmm. and so he would get as many as oh, he could carry <laughs> come back and visit uh encinitas and you know and he was a surfer so all you know all the guys got wheels and that was the beginning of it okay and then what i mean i i assume that the the wheels sort of drove the need for a better truck is right. that how it worked yeah yeah, yeah. And the, what first, was... the first day I rode on them, it was like, oh my god, you know, these wheels are just insane. Because you're still on a super narrow truck. That yeah. how does it how does it operate in terms of its um, angle? Well, the angles. Flex. Yeah, there's the angles are very similar to what we do today, and mm -hmm. they, and they're low center of gravity, so they they work pretty good and less chance of wheel uh, wobble and all that stuff. Um, but the thing is, is with with the steel wheels, they would slide out from under you right away. Uh -huh. With the with the clay wheels, you know, if you hit, if you're on a smooth surface, riding on a sidewalk smooth surface, or like we'd go to shopping malls at night and all this stuff, real glassy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a, a big grain of sand would stop your oh, wheel really? dead and yeah. you would fall and skin yourself up, you know? And I guess the smoother the surface, the easier it was. When we when you did it on the street, you, you know, you hamburgered. Yeah. And uh, all of a sudden, here's these urethane wheels that are softer and had some give. The first thing is they're quiet. They weren't making all the noise. Mm -hmm. It gets people going, what, what, what? What the hell's going on? Yeah. But they would roll over, they would even roll over a piece of gravel and you wouldn't fall. It didn't stop the wheel. The wheel, you know, just kept going. So it was, it was the polar shift in even thinking about skating 
the streets or anything. It's and but right away, I mean, the first day I wrote it, I go, God, first thing we need better bearings because the bearings were loose ball, mm -hmm. and you had to adjust the the bearing races because the bearings would get dirt in there and they would wear smaller and you had to keep adjusting the races or all of a sudden you'd see a bearing pop out while you're riding uh -huh. right? you're skating down the hill and going like hell and and all of a sudden the bearing pops out and another bearing and another bearing and then it seizes up yeah and yeah and then you're on the, on the street <laughs> wow so but anyways yeah and then you know we need some wider trucks i mean you can see my first skateboard was on a two by eight everybody else had two by fours but mm -hmm. i wanted the wider one your feet fit on it better you know and my dad had this redwood. He was making window sashes for our mountain cabin. and So that redwood made it. It was behind my house under the fig tree buried about this deep. And it just got a little bit of rot on one end of it. And that's it. Mm -hmm. It's still there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, looks, it looks good. I don't want to ride it. but. <laughs> um, so what led to the, what led, what led you to start? Uh, working on a, a new truck, a different truck? Well, you know, we came back. I had an office in my house in Lucadia. I lived on a property. What were you doing for a living at the time? Well, I was a commercial fisherman. Okay. That was my living. Um, and that, that first day, I mean, I had a skateboard. I had skateboards left from, you know, I started riding a skateboard in 58. And this was this was in probably 1971 when I moved up to Lucadia, uh -huh. and uh, that's when you know we discovered the the urethane wheel. So I had skateboards, but you know, and maybe I'd ride down when I used to live in Pacific Beach. I'd ride the skateboard down to the beach sometimes, but um, we didn't ride like we did when I was you know in my teens. Mm -hmm. But the skateboards were still there. So these guys come over to my house, and I, I don't remember if I was patching nets or, or fixing lobster traps or something in the front of the house. And they said, come on, we're going skating, you know. We're going skateboarding, you know. I said, mm -hmm. well, no, you got to try these new wheels. So we went up to La Costa, and after that, we came back to my place, and everybody came back to the office and you know we're having a happy hour there and telling stories and all that stuff had a whole group of guys and I said god you know this is really cool you know but but we need some real bearings in these wheels and and god we should have wider trucks you know and wider boards I mean to really take advantage of this and we had a little discussion about it, and I'm opening up my catalogs and seeing how much bearings cost and guessing at other stuff. Because I'd been a machinist already, mm -hmm. and I knew how to build stuff. And I had a small machine shop at my place there, and I had a, a place in San Diego. The guy had let me use his shop anytime I wanted. And so we thought about it, and, I, and I'm looking at the numbers and everything, and I don't know anything about, you know, profit margins or costs of doing business, anything. And so I say, well, to, to make a board like that, it probably costs $30. Nobody would ever pay $30 for a skateboard. 
And we kept on skating and fooling around. And a year later, I got the same group of guys together, and I said, hey, Billy Bain made 100,000 skateboards last year at $30 a piece. He uh -huh. didn't. He sold them for half of that, but the stores got $30 a piece. I said, maybe we ought to take another look at this. And so one of my friends, Dave Dominey, was all into it. And none of the others really wanted to commit to stuff, but they were going to go along and help out where they could. And so I started working with Dave. And, you know, we tried all the different roller skate trucks we could. And I started, you know, putting longer axles in the roller skate trucks and figuring out how they're made. And, you know, it's just... And being a machinist and all this stuff, and then on the boats I was engineer, and I, you know, I knew hydraulics and welding and all this stuff, and uh, and we had all this aircraft industry in San Diego, and I could I could go into Roar Aircraft on Saturday and buy, you know, parts they were getting rid of mm -hmm. and stuff, and and so I knew from machining and everything all the different materials and the strengths of them and. And so we built a truck based on all aircraft quality parts and and lock nuts and all this stuff because the hard parts of the roller skates was adjusting them. Nobody knew how to adjust them mm -hmm. right. Well, some people did, but it needed to be an expert. It needed to be foolproof, you know. Right. And and we changed it. We did a solid kingpin on the thing. Um, we made them easier to work on and assemble and made them out of strong materials and and ended up changing the industry ultimately did you what what did you do for the bearing at first were was, there bearings on the market that that no that did what you wanted them to do i was machining wheels going down the most, to my friend's machine shop and i would machine out wheels and press in precision bearings okay. precision ball bearings and they were expensive and the ones i was using were large it was an r8 and now they're using a 308 um and it was all about the price of them mm -hmm. um but uh yeah our bearings we were you know our guys were winning winning the slalom contests halfway because they had our trucks which were easy to control but but uh because they had the bearings in there that really spun good yeah crazy and so w what happens then you make a you make a, a skateboard that you can abuse and maneuver unlike you've been able to do before and is everybody jumping on the on the bandwagon to copy that like basically immediately? Yeah. Yeah, I mean Larry Gordon was making the Fiberflex boards and and they worked real good in in slalom and everything. But you kind of, you know, when we were riding ditches and and the reservoirs on the farms out here and stuff, the the hard surfboards were kind of, or skateboards were better. Mm -hmm. And so we used his technology of laminating, but just experimented with wood um, together with uh, Ken Watson, who he was in, well, I guess he was out of high school at that point. 
but uh, I built a press down at his property in Pacific Beach and we were gluing together different kinds of woods right. till we got it figured out and 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 then the whole thing exploded you know after we were because you could mold shapes into the boards and we were molding a kicktail into the laminated board right uh, to what degree is all of this as the board changes shape because I'm you know I was born in 80 and I've seen the skateboard change shape and all the stuff that we're talking about right now happened before I was born right um, as the board is changing shape to what degree is that being influenced by surfing because I know that now you've got a concavity in the deck of a of a skateboard that only a couple of companies have even experimented with putting in the top of a surfboard right the top of a surfboard is still uh, convex basically right uh, for most boards um, and you need the concavity in the in the top of a skateboard now to do all the flip tricks and, sh and shit that people are doing But that wasn't even I, I think about like a Nash skateboard in like 85 or whatever that was completely flat on the deck um, When does that sh how does that shift evolved in terms of the in terms of the shape of the board? I mean you talk about the kicktail and that's existed since I was born for sure And the kicktail, you know, was pretty much, people were using that. Sometimes it was just a piece of wood at the back of the board so your foot didn't slide off the back. But it ended up working as a kicktail. Mm -hmm. And and so that's that's been around for a long time. Um, But it was probably in the 70s that the kicktail became a common thing. Mm -hmm. And Makaha skateboards made the first one that, that had pieces of metal that came back and then a piece of wood bolted on it. It was pretty goofy. Um, but... But I don't know. I mean, the, the skateboard went through changes just in the things we were doing, and you found out that a concave worked that held your feet better. I mean, the, the surfboard is wide, so you got a lot of room to move around. Mm -hmm. But the skateboard, you pretty much, you know, yeah, a longboard, you can walk on a board like a long surfboard or something, but it's uh, the, the, the concave in in the deck helps your feet position themselves and then you know we had you know kicktails at the back and we tried all different angles and all this stuff and and then ultimately they put a kicktail in the front of most of the new boards the, the street boards all have it and a lot of the pool boards have it too and the kicktail in the front they've actually made longer than the one in the back which you know um, just enhances the ability to do certain tricks with it and mm -hmm. stuff. But from day one with the skateboard, we were trying to emulate surfing. And, and then when we found the ditches and pipes and stuff, all of a sudden it's like, it's really like surfing. Right. Cause, cause as you go up, if, if it's a, a regular huge pipe, you know, you go up and you get weightless mm -hmm. and that that's when you get that real surf feeling you know you're getting weightless and you know and we're doing kick turns and and then all of a sudden we're doing airs and everything 
and riding swimming pools and, and hitting that coping, which knocked us up and come back in. I mean, just incredible stuff that you couldn't do on a surfboard. And it finally got to the 90s where Herbie Fletcher's kids were trying to do airs on surfboards. Yeah. And they were the first ones that were doing aerial maneuvers and actually landing them. And now it's like, you know, if you're going to be at the top tier of the ladder, you better be doing some aerials right, right. or you're not going to stay there, you know? So, yeah, it's finally, you know, skateboarding took from surfing and we got bigger than surfing because surfing has to be done on the coast. Now they're doing some wave parks right. and stuff. But so skateboarding got huger and, you know, which... There's different factions that either like or don't like skateboards. For the most part, we're together. Um, but all of a sudden, skating was giving back to surfing mm -hmm. because they were able to do tricks and and the names cross over and mm -hmm. and it's pretty cool stuff. And in the in the process, there is the snowboarding came along the same way. So we've got board sports. Snowboarding is is different to do because I never skied or anything. And being a, a skateboard and surfer, you have all your weight on the rear a lot. Mm -hmm. And on the snowboard, if you have your weight on the rear, you have a hard hit on your butt all yeah. the time. And you have to learn to lean forward, which skiers already know that. They're leaning forward to go and that's what allows them to turn and everything and it like for somebody like me that was hard god you lean forward that makes you go faster and you get more scared right away but if you lean forward you can actually engage the edge you yeah you can engage the edge and you can do your turns and do everything you know yeah. that's what makes it work so it's different in that aspect but otherwise it's it's very similar yeah. a lot of the same feeling the other the other thing when you say you have to do you have to surf on the coast and that we have wave pools and stuff but one of the things that is strikes me as so different about um skating versus surfing is that as long as it's not raining which it never is in southern california you can always skate the same obstacle over and over and over again whereas the ocean changes right and the wave pools are going to enable people in idaho to surf but they're also going to enable surfers to have the exact same ramp every time, right? I feel like that's one of the things that that is different from the skate park and the ocean, you know, is that you can try the same trick until you break your arm or get it, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so when does, when does, hold on, let me restart this real quick. Uh, when does Transworld happen? Uh, we did the, the first issue of Transworld was, came out May 83. Okay. And and Surfer Publications made Skateboarder magazine. They made four issues in the in the '60s, I guess. And then you know, skating goes through these ups and downs, and and they quit doing the magazine. And then in the '70s, and maybe I don't know, '74 or '75 was their first issue um, f for Skateboarder again from Surfer Publications. And they did, you know, phenomenal magazine, and a whole bunch of other magazines came out at the same time uh, on skating. 
And but Surfer went all the way to 1980, I think. It might have been might have been 81 that they did their last issue. I'm not sure. Right around there. And they had changed the magazine to be called Action Now because BMX Bike was coming on at that time, taking participants away from skateboarding. Um, skate parks that were there were getting closed down because they were the land was basically purchased to to in that inflationary period to make money and build an office building or something on. You know, they said it was all insurance problems, but you know it was really it was really about making money off the land and they put a skate park on there because somebody could pay the taxes while the thing was uh, increasing mm -hmm. in value so so anyways uh skateboarder changed to action now and it didn't work for them i mean they they had uh, the other thing was the the rollerblading that was coming on with the disco scene and I don't know. I pretty much bummed out all the all the skaters, and especially the companies because we're paying for the ads. You know, there wasn't there wasn't BMX bike, you know, paying for the ads in it. They were right. just getting a free ride, and uh, and so that went away. And Thrasher magazine started in '81, and that was a total like a newspaper, tabloid size newsprint. And after the first, I don't know, year and a half or two, they started making it magazine size, but it was still newsprint. And they were, they were focused on San Francisco because it's competing companies with, with, you know, all the down south companies, we, you know. And we had Del Mar Skate Park, which was a mecca because everything else closed and Del Mar was was a mecca for skateboarders everywhere i mean probably you back home in in north carolina you probably the one that stuck out to me was uh the ymca in encinitas that's the one that i knew about and this is in the 90s right oh okay yeah because yeah, i was a 90s. i was a baby in the 80s that's right um yeah. so the one that i always saw everybody um skating was was the y in encinitas i knew about that before i even knew where encinitas was okay um so uh well let's get back to trans world in a second um because it's been influential in, in a bunch of different board sports and stuff but i asked you a question earlier and then i stopped you from answering it and i'm super fascinated by this i so i grew up in uh just south of north carolina in uh in conway south carolina and i had to drive two and a half hours to get to the closest skate park when i was a kid and it cost like like 10 or 20 dollars to skate for the day and the first time even though i had a driver's license the first time i went up there i had to take my dad with me so that he could they could watch him fill out a waiver and then i you know this is whatever 10 years later or something i i moved to california and there's skate parks everywhere they're free there's no supervision. You can go over there and just crack your head open if you want. You don't have to wear every once in a while the cops will come around and like if you weren't in a helmet they'd chase you off or whatever. But I was like this is amazing. This is heaven, you know? Like why are we allowed to do this? So you had some hand in in the liability conversation or something? What how did that work? Well, 
Okay, so we've always had associations, manufacturers associations, and uh, and they've changed over the years. But the the IASC association that we started up in the '90s, uh, international IASC, International Association of Skateboard Companies. We started working on how can we get skate parks back because uh -huh. they had come and gone again right and we'd gotten into guys building their own ramps and you know there's that whole thing going on there's a need for skate parks and so what we found out is that that there if the sport was considered a hazardous activity you couldn't sue somebody because you got hurt doing it mm -hmm. because you accepted the fact that you were doing a hazardous activity because it's on this list of hazardous activities. So all we got to do is get skateboarding to be a hazardous <laughs> activity, right? We know it is already. Right, right. So anyways, uh, Jim Fitzpatrick, uh, he, he lives in Santa Barbara. He was president of a Montessori school and he worked for, for George Powell of, uh, you know, doing trade show stuff and all kinds of things. Real creative group of people between Stacy and Craig Stasek and Jim. Anyways, so Jim is researching this and he's figuring out how we go about to, to get a law passed that we're hazardous activity mm -hmm. because obviously we are. And we bought him a suit and tie. <laughs> And, you know, we had, we had all his research that we did about it, and he goes up to Congress in uh, Sacramento and goes in there and stands up and says, you know, he wants, wants to get somebody to put a bill in to, you know, make skateboarding a hazardous activity because all these kids want to skate. We need to have skate parks, and, and this way municipal... Uh, cities would be able to build skate parks and nobody could sue for something happening and it's a big deal. Okay. Well, so after this is over, a couple of the congressmen came and followed him out into the hallway and they said, look it. They said, you know, you see the guy that sits at that desk up there that you were speaking to? Well, he's also the president of the Trial Lawyers Association. And... The way this thing works is almost everybody in this place that's a congressman is also a lawyer of some kind or another. And we don't want to lose our ability to be able to sue over something. I mean, this, you know, this is not going to work. You know, he says the only way this will ever happen is if we get worried enough that so many people want this to happen that they're going to vote for somebody else. Mm hmm then we'll go ahead and vote for it. But he goes, I don't know, good luck on ever getting that figured out. But that's what's going on here. You're wasting your time. So, okay, we come back from this, you know, lick our wounds. Say, okay, how are we going to do this? Well, we had the Castle Amateur Series going on in California. We had, you know, the, the Pro Series stuff going on, different areas, all this stuff. And so, and we're dealing with all these skaters. Every company has a lot of skaters that they're sponsoring and all this stuff. And so we put on 
a push to get letters written that said, you know, God, our kids need a place to skate. They used to have this place, but that got torn down. You know, our friends had ramps in their backyard, but the neighbors don't like it. And, you know, and all this stuff, right? And so we collected letters for a, for a year. Petition. Sign the petition. Send in the letters. All this stuff. And I don't know if you've ever been in the back of a post office, but they've got these sacks that are about this big that they put all the letters in and everything. So we get some of those sacks, a bunch of those sacks. And we fill them all up with letters and we get this whole thing. Okay, it's choreographed. We're going to do it. And at the time, Transworld had bought, uh, oh, what's that magazine up in Sacramento? It did skating in the summer and, and snowboarding in the winter. Heckler Magazine. And those guys' jobs, you know, that they made money at, and the, with the magazine being their passion, they made something off it. But their day jobs were riding bicycles through the city, delivering papers. Mm -hmm. You know, this is before internet stuff, right. you know, very much. And and at the beginning of it, and stuff had to be signed, and they wouldn't go for a signature that you didn't see, and all that. And so they're delivering stuff to all these different lawyers and to the thing, and they knew how the city worked. And so anyways, and, and we knew, you know, when they had the meetings and all that stuff. And so the day that we went up there to have the meeting, we hired a dump truck. And we filled the dump truck with sacks of letters. <laughs> That's so badass, dude. <laughs> this is so skating, right? Yeah. And so we backed the dump truck up to the steps of the Capitol building and dumped all these letters on the thing. And then Jim Fitzpatrick comes in with two of these bags and he goes up and he dumps one out on the <laughs> table of the guy that's sitting up there that's the president of the trial lawyers and all this stuff and goes through our speech of this is, you know, we've got to do this. And by God, they voted to make skateboarding a hazardous activity. And those guys told us that there would never, ever be another hazardous activity because the last one they did was in 1961, and that was skiing. Huh. And they would never do another one. Wow. Well, they did skateboarding, and then skate parks started, you know, flourishing. And, and we've put all our words out to the rest of the country of how we've done this. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's skate parks all over. It's now. coming. There are skate parks in where I grew up now. There just weren't when I was a kid. Yeah. You know? Um, and they're still not as plentiful because it's not as popular there. That was in 96. Yeah. When wow. That finally got passed. That's so cool. You like, the industry basically called itself out and shot itself in the foot to make itself more accessible. That's yeah. so cool. I know. It's, that sounds backwards. I love that. That's, and so to begin with, it's thinking outside the box, uh -huh. right? Which skaters aren't afraid to try some new trick. They're sure. always trying to, well, shit, this should be possible, you uh -huh. know? And so, and we're risk takers anyways, because how many times you fall down before you learn a trick? Mm -hmm. It's not an easy deal. Um, and we get a little help from the guys saying, well, you know, they were telling us that you can never do, do this, right. but they were really telling us how we're going to do this. Right. Or we figured out, well, this is how we should approach it. Uh -huh. And I love that story. That's super cool. Um, so let's go back to Transworld for a minute because I mean it ended up being uh, not just a skate magazine but also a surf magazine and um, how did that how did that sort of develop? 
You started it in 83, you said? Started in 83. And, I mean, I knew, I didn't know the difference between a sheep-fed press and a web press. I, I knew nothing about it. And we printed the magazine at, uh, at a company in Carlsbad that, that actually got a small web press. And for their own products, they made uh, they made products for for medical thing. Their their first invention was probably the stretcher that that the wheels would fold up in, where you could push it into the mm -hmm. to the ambulance um, without having to lift it all the time. Um, and then they made just stuff to, for police and and you know all the, the emergency services and all this stuff and they did the magazine there they were got the press to to put together their own catalogs and stuff and they had their whole system there they had the what's called the the stripping part of it because when we started the magazine there was no computer programs that you could do a magazine on i mean you you figured out the type that you were going to use you'd write your stories you'd send that to a typesetter that you'd say this is the font we want we want this this big we want this this big and 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 they would photograph all this stuff and then we would paste these photographs on these artboards which would were basically a two-page spread or if you're doing an ad it's only the one page you're working on but i mean You'd end up with all these different stacks of paper and tissue paper over it with images drawn of how the picture is going to go. And then it goes into the strippers, and the strippers take this artwork, and they're photographing that, making negatives. And on, if it's full color, that's basically four colors. you got black, you got white paper to start with. Mm -hmm. you got black ink, blue ink, red ink, and yellow ink, and the mixture of those colors because they're transparent laying on top of each other and they're little dots and that gives you your four color your eyes see that as full color pictures well so you'd think that would take four negatives but it doesn't because especially with the artwork that we did on the magazine where you have pictures overlapping other pictures mm -hmm. and and type set in the things you could use 45 sheets of film in order to do one page. One page. Jeez, that seems so inefficient. And these sheets of film now, well, they're doing more than one page at a time, but the sheets, the, the sheet of of paper is like four foot by, right. you know, four foot by shoot. So what's the what's the innovation that comes there? Well, it's a computer. Yeah. And and it took a long time. I mean, we started with computers and I could I could lay out a page. I could lay out three or four pages in the time it'd take one of our guys to do one page right. on the Mac when it started. And and then the computer just got better and better and then I was back we were printing in Denver and I'm back there. And they're going, God, you gotta come next door and look, there's this graphics place, you gotta check this out. Mm -hmm. And we went in this graphics place and here's this room that's about 30 feet square. 
and the whole thing is full of computers with reels running and mm -hmm. all this stuff. And this guy sits down on the machine, and they take one of our, they take one of our, or a couple of our slides and scan them, and they took the heads off of one guy and put the head on the other mm -hmm. guy. And this was a Cytex machine. It was the only one in the country that, oh, I don't know. I mean, just cost phenomenal amount of money mm -hmm. for these guys to be able to do this. But that it, it was just steps like that that happened, you know at an accelerated pace until you know we got to where we are today and nobody cuts film anymore i mean mm -hmm. and all that film i mean it's got silver on it right you you recycle a film they wash the silver off and use it over again to make new film but how expensive is that god it's crazy yeah. and time consuming and speaking of carolinas uh uh Ray Underhill moved out here um, to come to Skate Mecca, right? Uh -huh. And he was in North Carolina, and he moved out here. And he's a tracker, and you know there there was a whole Mid Eastern ramp series that went during the the 80s back there, and a lot of these guys came out and worked for for Tracker and Transworld and everything. And Ray comes out and, and he's seeing what we're doing with the magazine. He goes, well, my family, that's what we do is we're strippers, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're they're in the, in the printing industry. And so I took him up to our stripper, what was in Orange County, and they hired him on the spot. And I mean, they were bummed when he left to go be pro with Powell and go uh -huh. on a tour. But because he was the best employee they had ever had, and, yeah. and he knew everything. And the best part about it is he knew, see, when you go in to get something printed, skateboarding wasn't normal. They don't know whether the guy's regular foot or goofy foot. Right. They don't know if he's upside down or sideways or, you know, what are you showing here? You know, we had to really, our communications, I, when the fax machine came out, mm -hmm. our first fax machine costs, I paid distributor price. I, I signed up as a distributor. I had to buy, I think, 12 or 15 of these fax machines in order to get a distributor price. Mm -hmm. And that was $4,500 or $4,700 wow. or something a piece. But boy, I sent them to the printer the, the, and all the color strippers and artists that we, you know, it's just because we could fax stuff back and forth and, and see things. Because again, there's no internet going on. <sighs> Crazy. Went through, went through a whole age of stuff. And, and I, you know, I really enjoy learning stuff, you yeah. know. And get tuned in. Like I mean, I, I used to go to the stripper at night and go in the back door because the place closed. And since they made police stuff and everything, they had security cameras and mm -hmm. all that stuff. And and But the guys all liked me, and I'd go in there, and I'm, you know, okay, yeah, how do you do this? And I'm, so I'm learning this whole process until... Somebody noticed me coming in on the security camera through the back door, and uh, I got kicked out of there. But that was about the time we ended up taking the next step and moving to Denver and everything with the printing. So, anyways. It's kind of crazy that to think about, like, all of the innovations that happened during the life of the magazine. 
and those innovations eventually are basically sort of what killed the magazine, right? You know, it's like the the computer makes it so much more cost effective and so much faster to to make the magazine, but then the the internet eventually the communication takes of the internet a, is what destroys the magazine. Takes right? a customer away from buying the magazine. Right. Yeah. Because it's all on there. So um you are more or less quote unquote retired, but you've still got your hands in a bunch of shit. What are you doing now? Well, I still I still work on the molds for Tracker and different production problems and stuff like that. But uh, I've sold the company and you know and and I don't have to run any of that part of it. Um, I still get around, especially to some of the old bro skate stuff, you know. Uh -huh and uh, still touch base with a lot of the old skaters and they have some reunions every year and, yeah. and skateboard hall of fame um and anyways uh but gosh we give back you know i've been given back at the surf museum i'm the head advisor down there and louise is on the board at the surf museum she designed and built the the building that we're in in oceanside mm -hmm. And we're we're also founders of the uh, Surf Museum up in San Clemente. Okay. Uh, surfing Heritage. And uh, Louise is on the planning commission, and I, I'm the president of our association of farmers out here. And we work a ton of hours. You know, I mean, one of the biggest pluses that we've gotten in the last couple of years is that the city is working on a on a, a recycled water system that's mm -hmm. going to come up here and be able to to use to water our our like we grow avocados and nursery palms here but there's there's a lot of different crops that are grown out here we're the last remaining agricultural area in oceanside which was mostly agriculture for a really long time. Um, and we're just trying to save our lifestyle out here because we've got developers that would like to carve up our land into, mm -hmm. into housing subdivisions. More subdivisions, yeah. Uh, well, um, what about... Yeah, uh, you, you guys, I, I don't know if it was you or Louise that mentioned this earlier, but um, I have a friend in Encinitas who's on the Traffic and Public Safety Commission with me. From my perspective, the most interesting story uh, so far has been the um, has been the, the sort of liability reform uh, activism that that uh, that you guys did. And um, in the changing landscape of Oceanside and stuff. The one of my buddies is, is working on building what he calls an agrihood, right? And so it's like a neighborhood that allows development, but also maintains the the farming aspect. Are you guys working on that sort of thing? Is that out here? in? in uh, That's an Encinitas Valley thing. Center. Oh, it's an Encinitas yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is that is that something that's on your radar? In, in yeah, we've here, we've or? gotten. Uh, we call we call our thing agrivision okay and it includes agrihoods agritourism um, because the farming thing is changing so much and all the regulations on on farming and the raising of the minimum wage and 
and uh, demanding overtime hours. It's it's really hard for the farm laborers to make enough money if they can't have the overtime. But mm -hmm. when you have to pay overtime, like you might you might work really long hours for two weeks, and then not have any work for a week mm -hmm. and then you know i mean it fluctuates and the way our system always was it worked with these things and the guys could work as long as they wanted to and make money but but when you have to pay overtime for those hours mm -hmm. i mean if they could say okay if it's over so many hours in a month or or you know or a quarter or, whatever. or a quarter or whatever maybe it would work but they're saying no it's so many hours in a day and so many hours in a week well farming is not when when there's work there it has to be done at that time or the food's going to be rotten the flowers are going to die they're going to miss you know the mother's day you know whatever's happening um, it's not like just a nut and bolt widget industry, you yeah. know, it's different. And, but I don't know, it's politicians don't think through stuff. It gets back to the magazine deal, which they're going to think about how they get elected the next time mm -hmm. and how they hire somebody to do their job because they don't really need to work they they need to work on getting more money to get elected for the next term mm -hmm. and so they're not reading they, they sign these bills that just it sounds good this other guy says yeah this is a good one you sign this one and i'll sign yours mm -hmm. and that's the way our company our country is run and it's the when you're in a company you got to figure out what's going to make you work and what's going to make you survive mm -hmm. our countries don't do that they just say well we'll print more money you know and and so you're always bankrupt basically you can't run a business like that yeah did did you did you fall into being an entrepreneur or is this like uh is this like somewhere that you were always headed you seem very um you have a you have a huge appetite for learning shit right uh and it, it seems like you sort of like are always trying to figure the next thing out like a skater right um but did you did you anticipate did you expect this did you anticipate changing a, an industry uh, i don't know well no i just take what's in front of me and go for it you know i mean it was you know fishing was a real teacher i mean before that growing up like i said i did lawns and stuff you know it's, clean garages i did whatever i mean i was making surfboards in 1960 for the boat shop that was in town mm -hmm. you know i would go there they'd give me all the materials and i had a guy that was that would glass for me and you know we'd shape boards and and you know but i was pulling things together and giving people work back then even you know um and and I was always like that. I've always had probably three different jobs at a time, no matter what. And I, I went to work for the phone company. And I worked nights at Shakey's. And the phone company, I became a lineman climbing poles and doing all this stuff. And, I mean, that's a long story. But one thing, when I moved from, from uh, San Gabriel Valley down to... 
to San Diego. I lived in Pacific Beach and, and worked for the phone company there. And I got into all the aircraft plants because we were always having to run wires or change something going through the plants. And so now I'm dropped into the whole machinery thing, you know. I mean, my dad was, you know, he was basically a Finnish carpenter and a, but we built, he worked on the cars growing up and we built go-karts together and I, I started airbrushing shirts when I was in high school. I mean, making big money because, I mean, I had to learn how to do it and I went to a car show with my dad and here's big daddy Ed Roth spraying t-shirts or sweatshirts with an airbrush. And I was just mesmerized by that. I stood there and watched it the whole time. That's all I could talk about. Drove home in that old pickup, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my dad, you know, he hears what I'm saying. And he goes, who's got an airbrush, you know. Mm -hmm. And he found a photographer that had an airbrush because they would use them to Photoshop mm -hmm. pictures, you know, when you're doing without Photoshop. Yeah, without yeah. Photoshop, right. And... Uh, and so I started trying to figure out how to do it. And I'm walking down going to the sporting goods store in Alhambra and I go by the Downers men's store and here's this kid sitting in front airbrushing yeah. sweatshirts and so I'm all over it you know and he goes well come over to my house I'm going to show you how this stuff works he showed me the how to use the inks what inks to use and you know gave me the whole deal and you know and a month later he says hey you know I'm going off to college and uh, I talked to him here at Downers and he brought me in and introduced me to the guy he said this guy can paint shirts for you yeah. and so you know the next weekend I'm sitting out on the sidewalk doing his job shirts. Yeah. but my mom said well you know she took me on the trolley and we'd go downtown LA to the garment district mm -hmm. and buy sweatshirts wholesale and so I'm painting those at home and selling them at school. And I mean, I was, I was getting 250 a shirt to paint them for downers and I was probably making 450 a shirt, you know, painting them and selling them myself, you know, because you're making markup on the, on the shirt too. And so it was just, I was kind of always in there and and I don't know, probably came from my grand grandfather on my mom's side because he was he was an entrepreneur and a, and a problem solver big time. Yeah. My dad was a craftsman, and here we uh -huh. go. Just working on stuff. Um, are you still surfing? Yeah. Yeah. What are you riding now? Longboards. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite surf spot? Where do you usually go? Oh, I don't know. I mean. Oceanside here, different spots, but but I like to go to to San Onofre. We're going to be camping. I got a friend that's uh, captain in the Navy, and okay. so we, oh, you get the special we, site right we next camp to the old at man. church. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I've so never stayed in there. Camp. I've always looked in there, like coveting it. You know, I'm like, damn, dude, that's super cool. Yeah. Um, why'd you leave Encinitas? Like when I hear when I hear oh, he. Uh, innovated, he changed skateboarding r living right next to my favorite set of surf spots. I'm like, wow, that's that's crazy. And then, I mean, this place is beautiful, but why why are you here? 
Um, well, what was that? Oh, that's oh, a book too. Um, okay. So I was in Lucadia. I mean, I've I've bounced around a little bit in North County. I lived I lived in Oceanside for a bit. I was remodeling my house in Lucadia, and uh, and then I ended up getting a divorce and stuff. And but I pretty much stayed down there and in Encinitas and even went inland a little bit. And then and then I got the house at Stone Steps. And, you know, when we started making some money, well, this is the second time around because, you know, in the <laughs> 70s, we made a lot of money and, and uh, you know, and then everything went backwards and bought out my partners and was huge in debt and everything. And then, you know, and then the skating started coming back. We made money and I started the magazine using everything I made to do the magazine, had to go to a different bank because my bank would have never let me start a magazine a uh, lot of stories there but anyway so I, I ended up buying the house at Stone Steps and then when I met Louise her whole family's farmers mm -hmm. you know they came from northern Italy um, her grandfather's been farming California since 1906 or something I mean and her dad or brother still farms uh all her cousins farm and everything and, and it's just so anyways uh come skating had another downturn and i hired a guy that embezzled me into bankruptcy and had to pretty much start over again with wow. all the skating stuff and and uh i had my harley i'd ride my harley around after work you know and and ride through Rancho Santa Fe and all that stuff. And I found this area up here that kind of looked like Rancho, but it mm -hmm. didn't cost as much, right. you know? And uh, so we bought, we started with four acres here. and Same uh, property? Yeah, same okay. property. And, and then we bought, so now we're 15 with this piece. But all of a sudden I could go to the family parties with Louise and I could talk about, you know, acre feet of water, and <laughs> <laughs> herbicides and, you know, farm problems or whatever but you know all of a sudden because at the time who was a skate guy you know yeah that's fine yeah. we're still rolling um well so that that makes me uh that makes me wonder um when you say the word entrepreneur it either sounds uh super romantic or hoity-toity but there's also a dark side of it that you just sort of alluded to which is risk can you talk a little bit about risk? Well, because, I mean, I'm going to jump back to my commercial fishing days because yeah. I said this was my business education, you know. Um, and so, commercial fishing—you're going out in the ocean, which I love the ocean because I'm a surfer to start with. It was yeah. kind of hard fishing because a lot of the fishing times are when there's these great waves going yeah. on. But I saw waves everywhere. I mean, you know, I mean, we tried to figure out how to ride waves at the Cortez Banks out there before mm -hmm. anybody even dreamed of it, you know. Um, but anyways, I had I had license to fish in Mexico, too. And it's just every day out there, you're risking your life 
and you're risking your nets and you're risking your boat. I mean, it's all it's all risk. And yeah, and it's romantic and it's exciting and you know, it's all those things that we get off of surfing and everything else, mm -hmm. but you don't always catch fish, you know. I mean, you got to you got to really work hard and you have good days and bad days and probably you know, five five really hard rough days for every good day that you have when it boils down to it and i decided you know all of a sudden tracker was going and it's like i either had to do it or not do it because i thought i could just set up i set up machines my partner dave was he was doing the promotion stuff and he would run the shop and have the guys working and and I'm calling ship to shore, you know, and how many trucks are we building? I mean, and everybody's hearing this. And what are these tractor trucks, you know? They think they're, <laughs> you know, big trucks yeah. or something. Crazy stuff. But I had to make a decision of what I was going to do. And my wife at the time uh, said, you know, this, our relationship sucks because you're never here. Well, it sucked really bad once I was there. But so that <laughs> might not have been the best decision there. But it was. And But the thing is, coming to work on the beach and do the company, you're not risking your life. You're yeah. only risking dollars and cents. I mean, it's like nothing. I already knew how to make, you know, all the pieces to make good decisions on stuff. But in the end, it was you're only risking money, you know. Mm -hmm. And... So, you know, I've been rich a few times and I've lost it all a few times. I mean, it's, you know, in some ways, I guess it's like gambling, but in gambling, it's it's all based on luck. Uh, you know, when you're making decisions on business, you're, you know, you're being logical mm -hmm. about it. So, I don't know, did I answer yeah, that what's, question? Yeah, what's the life advice that comes out of that? Just <laughs> fucking do it or what? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the thing is, is that you got to be a survivor. So how are you going to survive and what's, what's the best way to survive and what's the easiest way and what's your, what's your level of risk that you can handle? Give me the book here. This, I mean, you might pull something out of this, but it's, uh, This is an article that that uh, I wrote for uh, for our business journal, Transworld mm -hmm. Business mm -hmm. in Action Sports Industry. This is way too long, but I'm going to read it anyways. This is kind of like my garage. We built it at a trade show booth. This is back in '91, and it's an inspirational article. And when when somebody gets this book, and you know, and they've got young kids, you know. Um, it's like, have them read this page because it's short, it's page three, and it's but it's an inspirational deal. Okay, so I titled it Back to Roots. Being there, I would write something for everyone, and being there was, you know, kind of taken from that uh, movie, uh, Peter Sellers movie way back when, but but uh, it's kind of like different things I'd done in my life, and I'd relate it somehow to business. So back to roots. I've always believed the garage is a special place. It's not where we park our cars, it's where we invent our dreams. As a sacred place, 
the garage rates right up there with the ch local church. And for some of us, it's an even more useful sanctuary. In the garage, you can play music as loud as you want. Get your hands dirty, let your body relax, set your mind free. Ever since I was a kid, the garage was where I dreamed, tinkered, and created. I'd build go-karts, motor scooters, or whatever, discovering the rush of engineering things at work. When you find something that is designed just right, you know it. You feel the fit, the function, the finesse. Like the 56 pickup I drove out of the showroom in with my dad. I raced it, hauled fish in it, showed off to the girls in it, and spent a lot of hours under the hood. I went from working on my pickup to making surfboards to designing skateboards, but the whole point has always been to build something that goes fast, looks good, and is capable of putting you in places that scare the hell out of you. <laughs> Anyways, and I go on from there, but uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's something that you do. So I've got to drive. I don't know why, you know, but I'm not afraid to work hard. Yeah. I mean, look at you, all the stuff you're doing. This is, you know, you're taking this path right now. You're going to do something, you're going to make it work, and you're going to either continue to do that or do the next thing so or evolve it, else. you yeah. know? Yeah. I was watching, have you seen Free Solo, the climbing movie? This dude climbed El Capitan with no ropes, and it's like a 3,000-foot climb and stuff. And it's, it, it's the same thing that you were saying about um about the fishing is like i finished watching that movie and my fucking palms are sweating the whole time i'm watching it and i've been worried about like this is my whole house and i'm about to drive it to chicago and i don't know chicago and i'm gonna park it and go into a class for five days and i'm like somebody's gonna steal all my shit but then i was like this guy just like climbed up a rock face for five hours and if he fucked up, he died. And if I lose all this stuff, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like, going to the place is more important than preserving my things, you know? Yeah. So I guess. Yeah, no, that's, it's all relative. You know, the guys I sold my boat to went down with it. There were three boats. Oh, wow. Two guys on my boat three guys on the next boat and five guys on the third boat the five guys survived because they were on a bigger boat and had a big enough uh lifeboat mm -hmm. that they survived in and the other three and the other two went down but all those boats went down and they were all because they made the wrong decisions they're out there they're 100 miles out you know drift fishing for swordfish and the storm comes up, you know, so, okay, the storm comes up, you know, maybe we better Bounce. pull our nets, yeah. you know, and, but no, we're just going to hang on, you know, I mean, and they got radios to tell, you know, what kind of storm there is and uh -huh. everything. I mean, it's not like we have today with the, all the satellite views and all that stuff, but still, they had input. Yeah. Plus, they should know what they're doing anyways, right? And so they hang there. And there's three different boats talking to each other, you uh -huh. know? And then all of a sudden, well, shit, we're not going to be able to pull our nets because 
is blowing too hard and we can't pull them up. So they just try to stick it out. Yeah, but you tie a buoy onto your nets and and you remember where you are. I mean, we right. still we had you know navigation by uh, by radio transmission and stuff like that. And you turn around and go as slow as you can and get pushed by the storm south. You know whatever it's doing and and uh, anyways every every time it you know to make a decision they didn't they stayed there because they were worried they were going to lose their nets mm -hmm. what if the current changes we come back what if we can't find them the current changes and bunches them up and they sink you know it's i mean every every decision they made was the wrong one yeah and they all perished out there so you gotta you know you gotta survive somehow and yeah i've made mistakes that uh have you know run me broke before but they didn't kill you you try not to make the same mistake more than once yeah. too what else what did what didn't i ask you that you want to talk about i don't know yeah all right we can call it there i really appreciate you sitting down with me um it's a good conversation i feel like i learned a lot and I, uh, I definitely can see a lot of you in, in the way I feel about stuff. Huh. So that's so I was that's reassuring at least. <laughs> I know it's been enjoyable from this side. Cool, yeah. Well, let's go but, surfing sometime. Yeah, don't be afraid of of failures. You know, you just you learn from them. And like I say, try not to make the same mistake too many times in a row. All right, guys, we did it. We had a really good conversation with Larry and. Uh, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, I think you should probably go over and at least watch a couple of minutes of the uh, video because Larry has a fantastic mustache and, you know, you, you, that's worth checking out. Um, really inspiring dude. It's cool to hear um, about his failures, honestly, for me as much as anything else because um, for such a guy that's, that's you know, made a lot of money, frankly, but also um, is a legend in this uh, skateboarding industry, um, it's really cool to hear about the failures of these people that you look up to um, because it's, it's, it's good to remember that, that you have to work hard and you have to take risks and sometimes shit is going to go wrong. Anyway, I appreciate you listening to this episode if you've made it that, that far. And uh, we'll see you next Tuesday for another episode of From the Van.